Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the beautiful words that we just sang that are about your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is for the glory of his name that we stand here today. And yet, as we've already heard, we stand here today because of the glory of your grace. Lord, I thank you for the truth that as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I get to hear from you. Lord, I pray that we who are born again would never take that amazing privilege for granted, that we would never lose the awe of being called sons and daughters of the Most High God, the privilege of hearing your voice, the majesty of seeing the beauty that is Jesus Christ. So as we continue to worship you by opening up the word that became flesh and made its dwelling among us, Lord, I pray in his name that we would be encouraged in his beauty. That our lives would not be the same as we walk out of here because we have beheld the glory of the Christ. Lord, I pray for those in this place or in the sound of my voice that have not heard, that do not hear, that have not seen, that are not yet born again, that today would be the day of their second birth. Lord, we look forward to the ministry of your Spirit in this place this morning. And it is in the power of that Spirit, and in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Please have a seat. Good morning. We are in this fifth week, believe it or not, already of this series in the Gospel of John that we are called, being called sent to make disciples. And that word sent there, or, or the, the way we got the theme for this series, sent to make disciples, comes out of John 20, 21, where it says that, um, that when Jesus speaks to the disciples, he says, peace to you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so as we were talking um, as a leadership team back before this series was even planned, you know, one of the things the Lord has put on our heart is that we really wanted to be about engaging in the call to make disciples more and more. And so as we talked about that as a team and prayed about that, we were saying what is one of the best ways for us to, together to be encouraged to make disciples. And it, and it was sort of like that aha, no dumb moment of, well, look at the life of Jesus, because that was the business that he was in, was disciple making. And so we decided, okay, how about the Gospel of John? And it's such a great fit for us in, in, that, in that desire to engage in the call, because what do we often say to people, if you've been, if you've been in the church any length of time at all, you, what, do we, what do we often say to people who are, either we see God working on their lives, and maybe they're starting to ask spiritual questions, or they're new to the faith, and they say, you know what, I don't really know where to start reading. What do we often say? John. Open up the Gospel of John, and let's start reading. And so we thought, what a great way to sort of look at the life of Jesus and also walk through this gospel together in a way that would allow us to walk other people through the gospel. So to that end, one of the things that we have available to you, and I want to thank Scott McAllister for this, really, is um, we have on, in, on the back table, um, we have copies of just the New Testament in the ESV format. And there are plenty of them over there. You can take them as almost like a, a walking track that you could use to engage with people. But more importantly than, than that, than just a free Bible to give them, is there is a, a handout, and one of them was in your bulletin, but it talks about how you can get to know Jesus Christ by walking through the Gospel of John. 
And so it, it, it doesn't hit all of the high points, and there are some typos already and some things that I will add as we go along. But this is a great way for you, as you're just trying to engage with people, one of the things we've seen really successful even in our leadership team meetings and in our leadership development um, meetings that we have is to just pick a piece of Scripture. In this case, it'd be the verse, maybe some passages out of the Gospel of John, and say, hey, why don't you read this passage, read this verse, and meditate on it, and I will too, and let's get together and talk about what it means. And then see what the Holy Spirit does in those God-appointed times. So those are available on the back. You can grab them. You will need a Bible today, by the way, and I'm not sure why my mic's doing that, um, but we'll, we'll make the best of it. But um, you need a Bible today. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you a Bible because we're going to be in it a lot today as we go along. Today's message, the fifth in this series, is called Sent to save the world, and it's probably in the most familiar part of the Gospel of John. But I would ask you not to let its familiarity have you tune out. Let's look at this piece of Scripture like we've never looked, like we've never read it before, as we ask this question. And it's probably the most important question that I've asked in a long time. What does it take to be truly born again? What does it take to be truly born again? So open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, um, the Gospel of John chapter 3. John is the fourth book in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 3. And we're going to pick it up right at the start of verse 1, and we're going to move along fairly rapidly here um, as I look at the clock. John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So the Pharisees were the, um, were the ones that were ultimately responsible for putting Jesus on the cross. They were constantly antagonizing Jesus and trying to get him and arrest him and persecute him. He was often talking um, negatively about them, which is certainly understandable. What are we doing? Trying something? Okay, well, I'm going to keep going because I don't have time. So, um, but here's one of the things that's interesting. Rarely are they called out singularly by name. So it's usually they're called out as a group, the Pharisees, and not in a positive way. So there's a reason that John says Nicodemus, and we'll get there in a minute. So they point him out by name, and, and then he's also a ruler of the Jews, which means not only is he a Pharisee, but he's also probably part of the Sanhedrin, which would have been like their version in a theocracy, their version of the Supreme Court. So this is about as big as you can get in Israel at the time, and up walks this man to talk to Jesus. Now let's look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from, a, from, from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God, is with, unless God is with him. Comes by night. Why? Because his fellow Pharisees would not have liked him coming to Jesus unless he was coming to Jesus to call him out. Not to ask a genuine heart question. So, he's, so he makes this point and he says, we know that nobody could do what you're doing. None of the other Pharisees would have said that unless God is with them. So the, the problem is he's sort of missing the mark a little bit. There's a little bit of truth in, in, in sort of the question that Nicodemus is coming to Jesus with. Because he's coming to him with a question. The question really is, who are you really? And and there's a little bit of truth. I, okay, we know you're with God, but the problem is he's missing the point. He is God. And a little bit of truth is a great big lie, right? And, and Nicodemus doesn't know it yet, but Jesus is going to help him see that, not, that, he, that he is almost right, but completely wrong, because almost doesn't quite cut it, except in horseshoe and hand grenades, right? But here's a question. What compelled Nicodemus 
to, to risk his position in, in their society, his position as a, as a member of the Sanhedrin, and come to Jesus to even ask the question. And I would say the Holy Spirit is drawing this man to Christ. And he is, Nicodemus is mentioned again in, in, John, in John chapter 7. We'll get there, Lord willing, um, down the road in this series. In John chapter 7, when the Pharisees are trying to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus just sort of quietly makes this little comment about, yeah, but our law doesn't really allow for that. And then at the very end of the gospel, in John chapter 19, who is there as Joseph of Arimathea is taking Jesus' body off the cross to bury it? Nicodemus. So little by little, through a little bit of faith at a time, God is drawing this man to Jesus. And ultimately just using him to ask a simple question, which is, who are you? So let's pick it up in verse 3. Jesus jumps right to the point Instead of, addressing his, instead of addressing his question of, like, so how can you do this unless, you're, unless, you're, um, unless, unless God is with you? He says, Jesus answered him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, like he often does when someone comes to him with a question, he sort of skips their, what they're asking about and jumps right to the main thing. He knows Nicodemus needs saving, and so he's going to tell Nicodemus, here's how it happens. Unless you are born again, that word means born from above. Most of your Bibles have a footnote there. It means born from above is what born again means. You, you will not see the kingdom. And that word, even that word see there is in, in the Greek actually means to become acquainted with. It doesn't mean see like someday you're going to get there and see it. It means that you won't even, you, you have no ability to, to be acquainted with the kingdom of God. You have no ability to see what I'm talking about, Nicodemus, is what, is what we're going to see Jesus say. So it shows how important this idea of being born again really is. It is a matter of life and death to be born again. It, it absolutely is. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this, man, of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. He's talking about how we have all tasted death because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden in the original sin. That has been passed down by, through, by them to us um, for all of history. But then what he says is, But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. It's interesting that this, this is the first long piece of teaching that Jesus does in John's gospel. And John doesn't have Jesus talking about, here's how you behave. Like if you look at all the other gospels, a lot of it is about, here's, here's what a Christian is supposed to look like. This isn't, this isn't John, because John is going to cut right to, from our first few messages, John is going to cut right to what matters. And so he's saying, I'm not here to tell you, I'm not going to use the launch of Jesus' teaching to say, here's how you live, but here's how you come alive. So he's saying, so his first long section of teaching is to say, this is how Jesus taught you come to life. What we've been talking about here since before we started this John series even, is this idea of it isn't about behave. Too often in the church we, we talk about behavior. But it starts with, that's the end product. And that's what, John is, that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here. It starts with, behold the beauty that is Jesus Christ. 
when the Holy Spirit moves on your heart and gives you His Spirit in you, a new heart, turns that heart of stone to a heart of flesh, you believe. Then you become more like Jesus Christ. You start to act more like Christ. That's where the behavior comes from. We got to start though. We too often, we, we want to jump right to here. We just got to come back here and go, are we beholding the beauty that is Jesus Christ and the gospel and grace as Kylie was reminding us of? So verse 4, Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into the womb and be born again, can he? As is, I talked about this last week. You're going to see it a little bit next week. As is often the case when you're dealing with a skeptic or someone who's questioning, they will want to get lost in the details of what you're talking about in faith. Don't. Because there's no, there's no end to those tunnels. I know because I was a skeptic. As an atheist, I would argue my Christian friends into circles because it would allow me to avoid the real question. So Jesus just blows right past him again. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, truly, truly, that's twice he does it in verse 3 and verse 5. It's verily, verily is how the, the old version of um, translations would say it. it. Jesus would only do that when he would say, I'm about to say something really important. So he's saying, I'm about to say something really important. Here's the deal. Be born again. Here's the other thing, that you need to be born of water and of spirit. And there's a lot of teaching out there about what that is. What does that mean to be born? Is it the first birth and the second birth? Because there's water around the amniotic, or the amniotic fluid and whatever. Here's, here's, what I, here's what I believe that he is talking about. The, the word water there, John uses the word water a lot in his gospel. Next week, you're going to see how Jesus says to the woman at the well, he says, if you drink from the water I give, you will never be thirsty again. He's not talking about physical water there. He's talking about something else. What's he talking about? Well, if you read through often, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's telling husbands how to live with their wives, how to be good husbands, what does he say to us, gentlemen? That we are to sanctify her. How? By the washing of water with the word we're to sanctify her by the washing of water with the word what is that supposed to mean well here's what i think it means it means he's he is connecting john is connecting the concept of water with the word of god just like jesus is with the woman at the well you will never go thirsty again what's he talking about because he, right after that what's he say i am the bread of life if you eat from me, you'll never be hungry. What's he saying? He's saying this right here, the word of God is refreshment for us. So he's basically saying, if you, will, if you are not born of my word and of the spirit in you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's my take on it. Take it for what it is. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. To me, that sort of makes my case for me. He's saying, yeah, there's the physical birth, and there's the spiritual birth. And the spiritual birth comes from the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. As the Holy Spirit moves on our heart and takes the word of God and applies it to our heart, we are born again. We come to life spiritually, but I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. It's this, it's this battle that is, that is often talked about in the New Testament, especially by Paul, because he struggled so much with, with knowing he was a saint, 
knowing he was sanctified, knowing that he was called by God to be sent to the Gentiles, and still struggling with the flesh. Sometimes you'll hear it called two natures. As Christians, we, have, we still have this physical body, this earth suit, Larry Wright used to call it, for those of you that maybe remember his teaching. This earth, this earth suit. And, and even though we are saved as believers, we, the presence of sin still, is still in us because we still have this flesh. The power of sin is not. As Christians, we are not compelled to sin, but we still choose to. But he's saying, it's, it is in Galatians 5, Paul says it this way. The deeds of the flesh are evident. This is Ephesians or Galatians 5, 19-ish. Right? The deeds of the flesh are evident. They are. And he starts talking about the lust of the flesh, the pride, the, the, um, the, the pride um, anger, strife. Um, and he lists a whole lot of really bad things that aren't, frankly, very family-friendly. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. It's this dichotomy of the flesh, our two natures, this, this fleshly part of us, this is what we still struggle with. Anger, jealousy, strife, gossip, slander. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. But we struggle. We still struggle. Let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, there's a little talk about what is that wind and the spirit. The word there is pneuma in Greek, and it's translated often the both the same way. The Holy Spirit, right? The study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology in theology because it's the, whole, the spirit is pneuma. So is the wind. So he's saying that ultimately it's all controlled by God. Pick it up in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's asking this question. And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Now, it may sound like he's calling Nicodemus out. I don't believe, because he did that to the Pharisees a lot. Right? The one time, that if Jesus was, had the spiritual gift of sarcasm, which unfortunately I excel in, and he had, or he was harsh to people, it was always the Pharisees. I don't think that's what he's doing here to Nicodemus. Why? Because he knows Nicodemus is seeking him. And when in Scripture is Jesus ever harsh to someone who genuinely is coming to him? I think he's just going, Nicodemus, the answer is right in front of you. You know the answer. You just can't see it yet. We had a great discussion about this passage in our, in our leadership development group on Tuesday morning, and um, Keith Wilkinson asked the question about, about what, what does it mean, this whole idea, because if, if we keep reading, I'm going to keep reading, look at verse, um, where did I leave you? Verse 10, so verse 11. Truly I say to you, we speak of that which we testify, and that which we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things, you do not believe um, and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He's saying, you don't have the equipment right now to see it, Nicodemus. You're going to read about this in your daily reading. Tomorrow, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this, that the natural man, the unsaved man, the fully flesh man who doesn't yet have the spirit, cannot see the things of God, for they are spiritually appraised. We don't have the antenna on our TV to pick up the signal yet, until the spirit is in us. But, Let's keep going. Now one who has ascended into heaven, um, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. 
as Moses is lifted up in the serp, serp, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus is quoting a scene in Numbers chapter 20. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, talking about how people were getting bit by these poisonous serpents. Um, they would raise up this flag when they when they looked on in faith on the on the um, what looked a lot like a cross, actually. But when they would look with faith on that, they would be healed and they wouldn't die. But even before that, when he's talking about this ascending and descending, he's making a point to Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you know. And this was pointed out at our men's group when Keith asked the question, like, what is that whole thing about? What is this whole scene about? And then as, I was, as we were chewing on it and talking about it, and then Dan Sidler calls me the next day. He's so excited. He's like, God showed me, like, where this is in Scripture. I wish I would have known it on Tuesday morning so we could all be blessed. So now we all get to be blessed together in what God, the Holy Spirit, showed Dan Siddler and he shared with me. So in Proverbs chapter 3, or chapter 30, it says this. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? Now get this. What is his name or his son's name? name. Surely you know every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is pointing to? First of all, there's this, Solomon writes 900 years before Jesus even comes, and there's this interplay between the word and the son and the father in him, and he keeps changing pronouns. Why? Because they're all one and the same. And we've seen in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We saw that the first week of the study, the second week of the study. So, he, so there's this interplay, but ultimately what Jesus is pointing to in these, in these few verses, He's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you know, these, you know this Word. You know the Old Testament. It is all about me. It's all testifying to me is what Jesus is saying. You just can't see it yet. Guys, it takes grace for us to understand the things of God. We think we have to have faith and then we'll get to understand grace. Grace is always previous. God is always first. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourself, it is a gift of God. God is always extending his grace to us. That is, the, that is the moment that he opens our eyes by his grace, through his son, so that we can understand and even have faith. Right? But it doesn't, it's not I got to have faith so then I'll understand grace. It's you've just got to, you have to come to grace. Come to accept grace for what it is. The unmerited favor of God on your life. And faith will come. Look at the being in community section of, um, of your connecting points. This, this is the so what of what we're talking about. It says the whole narrative of John 3 is not driven by the resolve of Nicodemus, but by the power and glory of rescuing, revealing, forgiving, accepting, and transforming grace. God is a relational God. His love is seen in his grace towards us, and his grace and love are lavished upon us that we might pour them out on others. How are you doing at living in loving community? This is where we grow in the power and glory of his transforming grace. Don't wait. 
get into a life group and get relationally connected to the family now. Guys, that may sound like an advertisement and I'm not apologizing for it. It's the, if, if all you're doing about being connected here at Cornerstone is coming on Sundays, doing your, few, your, your you know, hour and a half and then heading out of here, you're, that is not enough. And I don't mean that's enough to satisfy me. I mean, that's not enough to satisfy your soul. As followers of Jesus Christ, we were built to be in community. So get in one before you actually find out you need one. That could be a core group. That's this week coming up. That could be prayer night on the property. That's coming up this Wednesday. Lots of opportunities to get connected. So what does it truly take to be born again? One, we have to be born of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, we can do nothing. The next is we have to be born in God's love. And we're going to take a closer look at what might be the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Let's take a look at that kind of piece by piece like, we've, like we just read it for the first time. For God so loved the world. Guys, without love, without God's love, there is no forgiveness. Without his forgiveness, there's no opportunity for love. And that flows not just in this relationship, but that flows in the relationships we have with each other. Without us loving each other, there is no forgiveness. And without forgiving one another repeatedly, because we will offend each other, it just happens. I probably offend most of you every Sunday. But because you love me, right? I'm just not like this. Because you love me, you're willing to forgive me. That's where it flows from. God loves us, so he forgives us. Guys, here is the problem in life. This is the problem in the world. It is not what's going on in politics. It's not what's going on in North Korea. It's not what's going on in your family. Here is the, the problem of life. We all, each and every one of us, has committed treason against a holy God. Every one of us. And a holy God cannot allow that to go unnoticed. He can't just go, oh, I didn't see that. We have committed treason. But that same God also provided us the way out of that mess that we created. He didn't create it. We created it. Guys, God does not look at the fallen world with hatred and disgust. So why do we? God does not praise the Lord, literally, praise the Lord, that he does not look at the fallen world with hatred and disgust, but with grace and love. So why don't we? Why don't I? Why do I look at the fallen world, the people that aren't behaving the way I think they should behave or believing what I think they should believe, why do I look at them and go, oh, would you just get wise, would you wise up, get your act together, pull your pants up and wear a belt? Sorry. What I should say is, man, do you know Jesus? Like, like, you, because that's what matters. They can walk into eternity with their pants down around their knees, but as long as they're walking into eternity in the right place, that's the important part. I don't know where that came from, sorry. <laughs> don't walk around with your pants around your knees, gentlemen. Pull them up. If you can't tuck your shirt in, your pants are too low. That was for free. Okay, let's move on. The word world, I want to point out one other thing in that first part. God so loved the world. the world. The word world there, that's hard to say, the word world there does not mean every person. This is not a call to universalism. Not everyone is saved. What that means is the entire globe. 
It's every tribe, tongue, and nation will be. It's, it's been God's plan from the beginning. God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. But what, did it, what was that call 2,000 years before Jesus? It was through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In Isaiah 49, he says that I will make you, Israel, a light to the nations. Now what Jesus is doing here is he is blowing Nicodemus' mind up. Because Nicodemus thinks the only people that are going to get saved are Jews. That's what he was taught. That's what he, and, and, God's, and, and when Jesus says, for God so loved the whole world, not just the Jewish people, that he gave his only son. I'm getting ahead. But he's making a point. He's saying God's plan, it's what Dan read for our invocation passage, is that the gospel would go to everyone, including the Gentiles. Look at the next part. So he loved the whole world that he gave. Our God is a sending God. He is a giving God. He sent us salvation in Christ when he gave Christ to us. John puts it this way in his letter in 1 John. By this the love of God has been made manifest in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And he goes on in verse 14 of 1 John 4, and he says, you, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Guys, unless we get that God is a giving, gracious God just because that's his personality, we don't get the gospel. Right? We, just don't, we, we cannot understand it because we see it as judgment and why would God judge? I wrote this, just, and I'll put it up on the screen just so you can follow along. Christianity is the only religion in the world that states the truth that we are not basically good and thereby fall short of the glory of God. So there's a lot of religions that teach that, or there are a lot of cults that teach that, that you're bad. That's the truth. Guys, the bottom line is there are no good people. Your child is not an angel. And if you've been a parent very long, it does not take you very long to understand that. I don't know how pe people that say all people are not born into sin have never had children. Right? That's the truth. Because I didn't teach them to sin. They just came out that way. However, it is also the only religion that shows us that God is the one willing to provide the sacrifice for our shortcomings. Right? It, that's what I don't understand the argument about why are you Christians all about judgment? Now, some of that is self-inflicted. Is self we have, we have not extended grace and love. We have camped on too much of the truth. Just take this truth and shove it down their throat. So we've inflicted that on ourselves in some way. But guys, we don't need to hide from the fact that sin is judged. Every other religion should. We don't need to because we, we can say, and guess what? The just God who judges sin paid the price by putting his son on the cross. He provides the way out. We don't need to apologize and go, I'm sorry, there's a, judge, there's a God who judges. God, God is a just God. He is. He is holy. He is righteous. No evil can dwell with him. But he also took care of that for us. By coming, he could have given us anything. For God so loved the world that he gave us half the universe. It's all his anyway. He says, but he gave himself. That's how much he loves us. Paul says it this way, right? In Ephesians chapter 2, if you're taking notes, Ephesians chapter 2, he says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
right? You were walking, basically what he says in Ephesians 2, 1 through about 3, is you are walking controlled by the devil. And then verse 4 of Ephesians 2, two of the best words in the Bible, but God. But God, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made you alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. That's the gospel. Guys, Jesus didn't just come. God didn't just give his son going, you know what, I'm going to just give my son, or I'm going I'm to just give my son, and he's going to have to come down there and live in your filth for a while. They, they the triune God had planned this out and said, I know where this walk ends. Jesus came knowing, he came down knowing where his trail was going. He knew that the cross was coming before he even was sent. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Because we all love that last part, right? That who, and we should. That whosoever believes in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. That word perish there in the Greek actually means, it doesn't mean annihilation. It means destiny of ruin. The word perish there in your Bible means destiny of ruin. It doesn't mean you cease to exist. It means you exist in eternity in hell apart from God, without his love, without his giving, sending heart, without his willingness to sacrifice, we perish, period. Without his love, without his giving, sending heart, without his willingness to sacrifice, we perish. That's the deal. That's John 3.16. But guys, it's not something, we don't need to read that and go, oh no. We need to read that and go, oh yes. Because he's given us the ticket out. That's the gospel. Because we don't appreciate that fully because we still believe we're not that bad. Right? That's, it's kind of where we started. Nicodemus wasn't getting it yet, but part of why he wasn't getting it was because in his mind, if anyone in the world is saved, it's me, is what Nicodemus is thinking. Right? We don't really fully embrace how bad we are. So how can we possibly understand how good and loving God is and what the cross does in between those two things? We have to, that's part of why when we're talking with people and sharing Jesus with them, we need to admit our own shortcomings. We don't have it all together. Guys, if I believe I have it together, Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 2. He says that it is no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. In this life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he goes on and he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Because if righteousness could come from me doing good things, then God, then God did John 3.16 for nothing. He's saying, then God sent his son to die on the cross for nothing. Every time I think that all I need to do is help a little bit, like God, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. I just need God to help me out a little bit. I am nullifying the grace of God. I am, I am spitting. Guys, get this terminology, get this visualization in your head. I am spitting in the face of Christ on his cross every time I think I can do it myself. Because if that were true, then God is a masochist. He killed his son for nothing. That can't be true. Because it's not. Someone had to pay the price, and someone did, and his name is Jesus Christ. Look at your engage in the call. 
says, God went to great lengths to show us great love. If God so loved the world that he gave his only son, what are you willing to give or give up to be used by God to see the world saved? This world is in rebellion and in desperate need of redemption and restoration. And so were you prior to believing that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. So don't see the world as an enemy, but as the mission field he is sending us into. As he was sent, we are sent to seek and save that which is lost. So to be born again, we have to be born of the Spirit. We have to be born of God's love. And the last thing is, and we're going to prepare our hearts for our time of prayer by, by quickly looking at this interplay between Jesus and Nicodemus, born in the light. Let's pick it up in verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Guys, okay, do you get what that's saying? It's what I was talking about a minute ago. The gospel message is not a message of, of damnation or condemnation. It is a message of salvation. The gospel message is not a message of damnation. It is a message of salvation. That's what we need to lead with as Christians. It is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It is God loves you and sent his son to die for you so that you might have eternity with him forever. But that's a good message. And we should be sharing that. God is not judgmental. But he is just. He is a reluctant judge. Guys, how do I know God is a reluctant judge? Here's how we know. Jesus hasn't come back yet. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter chapter 3, I think. He says, God, you know, a thousand years is not, I mean, we, we want to talk about this, we want to get lost in the details. And what does a thousand years mean? And, one, and it's like one day or one day is like a thousand years. Let's just skip to the real part. God is not slow about fulfilling all of these promises as some would count slowness, but he is patient towards you. Why? Because he wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to everlasting life in Christ. Why do I know that God is a reluctant judge? Because Jesus hasn't come back yet. Because when he comes back the second time, game over. He will judge. He has to, because he's just. And here's the other thing about God, and this is why we don't need to apologize. It's, it's not like God plays gotcha. In the Old Testament, he sent the prophets to say, guys, I'm coming. Get ready. Believe in the promise. In the New Testament, guess who the prophets are? I'm looking at them. The church. Our job is to be like what the prophets were. We are to proclaim, he's coming. Get ready. Come to Christ. Let's finish it up. Verse 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Guys, it's not, it's, the, the judgment is already on us. Why? Because we have committed treason against a holy God. We are constantly pulling God off the throne of our heart and putting ourselves on it. God, that is sin. That is missing the mark. But God provide, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. There's the, la the answer. The, the judgment is already here. God is providing us the way out of it through Christ. This judgment that the light has come into the world and men have loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. 
For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. It's like a cockroach on your counter in your kitchen when you turn the light on and it scurries away. Right? But guys, get this. Get this. God, I'm going to say it one more time. God is not judgmental, but he is just. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth I thank you for the truth of the gospel, the good news that you did for us what we could not do, that the reason you sent Jesus here is because you want us there, because there we will bring you glory. There we will praise you for eternity. Lord, I thank you that that even though we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there are a lot of reminders in Scripture of your great love for us. But God, when Doug was dead in his trespasses, made me alive. You tell us in Ezekiel that you will put a new heart in us, that you are going to put a new spirit in us, that you are going to turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And I thank you that you have done that for me. That 24 years ago, you looked down from heaven in my filth and you said, that one's mine. And you redeemed me back. But you did it for a reason, and that is that my life might bring you glory. Lord, I pray as a people that we would be a people born again to the glory of God. That as we continue to worship you in music and in fellowship and the meal afterwards and in every other way of our lives, and we walk out of here and we worship you in how we are proclaiming your good news, Lord, I pray that it would all be to one end, and that would be the fame of your name. Lord, I thank you for your deep, abiding, never-ending, unconditional love for us, displayed in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.